In April 1983, a group of people gathered outside a Zen Buddhist temple in Kanonji, Japan, for the unveiling of a statue dedicated to the memory of Moro Halloran. She was an Irish-American woman who had lived there while undergoing her training in Zen Buddhism. She had died in a bus crash in Thailand the previous October at the age of 27. The inscription on the statue reads, Miss Mora has been the real incarnation of Kanon Bosatsu to be loved and respected forever. Those who subscribe to the statue see her as an incarnation of the Goddess of Mercy. snow begins across the mountain covers the rice fields down below a woman awakens her breath is frozen in the early morning out on the freezing streets with bell and bowl she goes People come to see the face People come to feel the light Of an Irish girl Everything in the world is new Everybody I tell Wants to know you so she, so she, so she. In 1996, I was walking down the street of Nace County Kildare when I was accosted by Sally Ann O'Reilly, who told me about this incredible book that I really had to read. And when that happens to me, I invariably have to go looking for the book. And I found Pure Heart, Enlightened Mind and it was a very beautiful experience. As, as I read the book, I, I just felt so many connections with Maura. We were born within 24 hours of each other and um, had a lot of connections uh, family-wise and lost our father at a very young age. And we were in Trinity College at the same time, though our paths didn't cross. I felt a great sense of getting to know somebody who I really, really liked and a great sense of friendship and I still feel that and I wanted to write this song so that I could sort of carry that friendship with me um, and so that I could just tell people about Maura because I think that it's a very important story to be told at a time when the spiritual life of Ireland is changing so much that she is a voice that needs to be heard and um, I'm just very happy to know her. I am American, and her father was a Kerryman, a native of Tralee, and um, uh, we met over here back in, way in the early 50s when um, I was doing graduate work at UCD, and uh, we were married in, uh, uh, not in Boston, but in Maine, where I came from, uh, in 1954. Maura was born a year later, in 1955, and um, followed by <laughs> five more after her. Um, so, um, uh, and then um, 
uh, we came back to to uh, to Ireland in 1959. So she was quite young when we returned here. Um, I'd say must must have been only four, of course. And um, she began really putting down roots here. Really, she, her heart was always in, in in Ireland, and I think that comes across in her in her writings uh, and and even in her accent. Everything about her was very Irish. She went to school. She and her younger sisters went to school in a school that's now gone on on Leeson Street. It was uh, called uh, Convent of the Sacred Heart. It was a very fine school, um, and I think she got the beginning of her very splendid education right there with uh, the, the Sacred Heart uh, nuns. When we went to the States, uh, she continued with Sacred Heart over there in Boston. And uh, then we came back, because well, we didn't come back till after her father was killed. He was killed in a kind of a freak accident on his way home from work uh, in 1969, and she was had just turned 14. So she really, uh, the other, other children were in camp that summer, and she really took care of the little, the baby. She The baby was nine months old, Beth and um, helped me pack up the house and all the things, getting ready to move back to Ireland, which we did in 1970. And uh, she and all of her little siblings <laughs> went uh, transferred to um, uh, Mount Anvil uh, also. I think many of her teachers would still remember her there, that um, not only intellectually, but uh, very, very outstanding sort of leadership. Uh, that was her, her very, she was good at, well, in English, obviously, it shows in her writing, but she was also um, very interested in math. She had thought at that time she wanted to become an actuary. Seems strange cause <laughs> to make make such a different career decision. But anyway, um, and languages. She seemed to have a great gift for languages. And uh, she was determined she was going to get the, the, the Trinity Scholarship uh, largely to save me expense. In those days, you know, you had to pay. <laughs> and um, sure enough, she had uh, had got it. I, I remember it was a kind of a fun time, except the fact that Maura had uh, was not at all interested in clothes, and trying to get her into something decent for all these events was <laughs> a bit of a challenge. I guess she didn't want to take either the time or the money to shop. But um, when she was in college, I think she found that just meditating was useful to her. It made her more focused. It made her able to concentrate better and able to make her time count for more. She was very efficient, and um, she got into the meditating habit, as many young people did at that period, still do. I don't think she ever meant to make it a, a, you know, a permanent career of, 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 the, of the Zen thing. It was just one interest, and um, she, um, but, but because her life was cut short, that's as far as it went. I think she was, she was a very generous person, and that goes with it, because they, they are very generous, compassionate people. And, um, Zen Buddhist people, and um, I, I really can't say, other than the fact that she didn't take up this meditating thing, I can't see anything that would even have hinted at this. They sat together in the park As the evening sky grew dark She looked at him and he felt a spark Tingle to his bones T'was then he felt alone wished that he'd gone straight and watched out for a simple twist of fate. From our side of things, we were sort of north side Dubliners, you know, coming into Trinity, and we, that was unusual in those days. Moira was an Irish-American, but she seemed to kind of fit in really easily. Moira was basically a, a total free spirit. Uh, she was a really individualist. 
and she used to, for example, fast every Tuesday. And it was just like on the really rare occasion that she would break out. I think she used to drink a cup of tea on the Tuesday, but that was everything that was allowed. And then she used to go on these brown rice fasts, which were for nine days. And I think on the seventh day, you know, the toxins left your body. And that would have been far too heavy a regime for me. And she basically ate, you know, these funny soups. And um, she was just a very normal kind of character. And she, um, you know, she was in a relationship with um, a guy for a long period of time. And she was just herself, really. Between Mar and myself, we were the very closest of friends and the very closest of confidants. The happiest times, I can say, with Mara, probably for her too, were when we lived in Bramfield Street in Boston and we would go up at night after a long day's work. She worked two jobs, I worked two jobs. We'd usually go up on top of the roof with a bottle of whiskey and we'd sit there with a couple of glasses and we'd knock it back straight for maybe one or two hours and look over the city. And we would talk about all the things you would talk about in your mid-twenties. About what you are doing, what you're going to be doing, all the possibilities of what you're doing. We were doing a photography course at that time. We were reading very widely. We were going to a cinema there, which was showing film noir. Like, and it just seemed, the possibilities did seem and were endless. They really were endless. We had all the advantages, obviously. We had the education, we had everything. But we also had a personal kind of freedom just to think about what we want to do. I just remember her warmth. She was just so... From the first minute I met her, um, she was easy to be with, and yet I always knew how special she was, that she had something that certainly I hadn't got, and yet she was ordinary. She was great fun. She travelled down to Tierra del Fuego and, and on her own and back again. And I mean, for years, it would be the one thing I would sort of tell people I knew, you know, I have this friend who travelled down to Tierra del Fuego on their own and back again. I mean, in my memory, and certainly at that time, nobody did that. I remember how Maura was sensuous. I mean, our, she used to, when we would be, you know, messing or uh, when we'd come home from work, we'd have music on or we were having a few drinks or, um, you know, just enjoying ourselves and relaxing. Uh, she would start to dance and how she loved the feel of certain materials and silk and, you know, how she just would use touch as a way of communicating. And um, it was a very important part of her was that sensuous, sexual, physical side of her that liked um, the fun of, of all and all of that entails. My memories are of a wonderful person, also gentle, innocent, cheerful, and kind, who gave great pleasure to others. Anyhow, she really was so proud of Ireland, so attached to the place, you know. I have so many memories. The first time I met her, 
She looks like she came from the country. How should I put it? She seemed homely. She was wearing plain clothes. Her hair was all messed up. She looks like she had unexpectedly come from the country. That kind of tomboy look. That's the image I have of her. Because of this image, I wondered was she okay? However, her personality and ability, as well as her mission and her destiny, the combination of these things led to her being thought of as an incarnation of the goddess of mercy. Because of this, for those of us who have a relationship with her, when we study together about her, our spirits are raised. I phone Toshoji Temple and met at Temple by Tessai san. He guides me through mounds of mandarin oranges under the paper lanterns, past the vendor plying sweet potatoes. He says, You came at a good time, tea time. There are four monks like little boys, laughing, innocent, delighted to see me. I meet the master, Go Roshi. When I was told that I could stay there, I felt as if I had come home. Very settled and bursting with happiness. There are no other foreigners yet. The master can't speak English. They give me my room, four tatami mats wide. We go upstairs to chant. The statues look pagan. I've no idea what I'm getting into. Dinner is disastrous. We kneel around benches. There's a precise way to do everything. A million bows. Silence. The damn egg roll is so big and greasy that I can't pick it up. I'm behind the others, gobbling, trying to catch up. The voice of the master shatters the silence. You eat slowly. I don't know if it's a comment or a command. I take it as the latter and relax, and I'm grateful that the one thing he said was so right. My ceremony. I am named Soshin. I like it. It rhymes with Ushin, a name that has always intrigued me. The others had been given names like Iron Wolf or Iron Ship, so I was surprised at how beautiful my name was. It was variously translated as Great Enlightenment, Simple Mind, or Warm, Open, Frank Heart. I'll gladly take any version. I'm to go to Morioka in January to beg. I really enjoyed sawing wood. The monks are not at all sexist. I'm totally one of the lads in dress, behaviour, and treatment. I'd love to be as peaceful and vibrant as Goroshi. I do wish I could understand him. Today I had my first real meeting with Goroshi. He gave me the koan of Mu. Nothingness, only Mu. I become filled with Mu. Kathy san was enlightened in three years, one priest in a year. I need not wait for old age, just follow Goroshi. I have total faith in him. He can see inside me. 
He has the strength to kill my ego so that I can be free. Without fail, he says, you will attain enlightenment. I can scarcely contain myself. Nothingness, nothingness. It's like a jungle drum beating through my veins, but I must fight for it. I sleep in a frenzy. I keep awakening, hearing nothingness, nothingness. The days went on, full of moo. I avoided the other's company, stopped laughing, and only thought of moo. At times it drove me crazy, moo, moo, rattling in my brain, not allowed to think of anything else. I jump up and throw it out, annoyed. At other times I go down, down, down with it, down beneath words, where my breath is gentle. Like looking up through the lake, and the surface is a sentence, and I'm below. Gentle at times, quiet, a little smile slipping across my face. Sometimes I sit an hour and a half before there's five minutes of calm. At times I'm so happy, other times so vexed with my trivial mind. Kanonji Temple, Iwate Ken, begging, layer upon layer of clothes, sometimes ten, with our begging bowls and bells we walk slowly through the streets of Marioka, through the snow and sleet, in straw sandals, bells ringing, chanting. The little old women slide open the panel on their doors, drop a coin in a bowl and stand with bent head and long apron waiting for a monk's blessing. Sometimes they gasp in surprise when they see me, a woman, a gaijin. When I walk, just walk, chanting, not wondering what time it is or watching the doors, I'm very happy. It was the great cold, the great coldest, coldest weeks of the year, coldest prefecture of the country. Goroshi was delighted that I wasn't used to the cold. Better training. I told the temperature by whether the offerings were frozen or not, and often they were. So, wiping a metal cup, the cloth would freeze on. Washing in the morning isn't cracking the skin of ice on the basin, but taking a blunt instrument and bashing it. I was sitting up in the meditation hall, and Jiko's words were in my ears. When you are your mother, when you are Roshi, then you are enlightened. I didn't see how that was possible. If I wasn't myself, I certainly wasn't them. I kept telling myself, you are everything. Hard to conceive of. Then it hit me how totally arbitrarily we have defined our so-called self. I am my body, thoughts, perceptions, personality. So the thought of my mother is me, but my mother is not. The real I, I've defined as not me, 
and that which is merely the image and not real, I have defined as me. Strange. The spit in my mouth is me. The air in my mouth is not. The food I take in isn't. Yet somewhere it passes some vague border and becomes me. I myself was so arbitrarily defined. The thought is me. The spit and food is me. But the painting I produced, spawned from my thought, is not me. The tune humming through my head, me. And if I anyway reject that definition of self as non-existent, can't I then redefine myself? She washes noodles by the open window, wet and soft between her fingers. The air of spring blows on her face, and the moment is eternal. Mara sits in the dark, womb-like stillness. She's thinking, how can I die or cease to be? I am eternal. I am Roshi. While I was waiting at a subway station in the seedy part of Tokyo, I was looking at the daytime dead neon light, the sleeping seeminess, waiting for night. It's an attractive world because it's earthy and grubby, alive, real yet totally false without the pretense of reality, vibrant throbbing music and bodies. I thought about the alternatives that confronted me when I first came to Japan last November. The usual job as an English teacher didn't interest me. Either monastic renunciation or sensory wallowing drew me. A soul seeking surrender? It was either accident or providence that the former happened first. Either way was a search for liberation, freedom from inhibition, from other people's values, from their suffocating Puritan ethic born from the delusion of a retributory hereafter. Or else the other option, spiritual liberation. But from what? This one was hazier. Those who suffer want liberation from suffering, but I seldom suffer. My life has been wonderful, blessed. Who could enslave me? I did as I wished when I wished. Now I feel gratitude that this Zen way took me because I consciously, fervently, could not be said to have taken it. Now I feel there is no turning back. I stood in the rain for the longest time without getting wet. Nobody knew. It was my koan. The rain noises were on cement, on stone on my plastic mac. The bird in the apple blossoms shook the moisture from its feathers and sang. I, in sympathy, shook in my mac and was silent. How can one be Buddhist and not be socialist? 
How accept and allow the perpetration of a system based on desire? A system that functions as trigger and effect of the desire for money and commodities. A system that, to feed itself, must resort to crass commercialism and ever-spiralling desire. When she went to Japan, you can see it in the letters, you can also see it in some of the book, that it was a temporary type of thing. And yet she was doing something that for many people, Japanese or otherwise, that were there, it was their whole life. And yet she was there purely on a learning experience. It was a, a totally, it was a learning experience that went to her core, but it was still a learning experience. She was taking the knowledge. She was building it up, I think in a very fair situation, and she was going to use it when she left. And she never ever intended to stay in that mode. And that was what was, uh, that was what was most tragic in the situation that she had got to, I think, a major milestone in a massive learning process that I can't think of anybody that I know of or have read of who has gone through the amount of learning she went through at her age and to have done it so well, so brilliantly dedicated at it and was so ready to really put that. And she says it all the time in the book and in the letters that the ideas that she had for doing things with it. She wasn't sure what or where, but you could see from everything she did that she was going to really do things. And that's the terrible tragedy. I told Takibana Sensei that in Japan, people don't want to do Zazen. In Ireland, they do. I wanted to build a dojo over there. Goroshi was laughing, said I was a plane and could fly to Ireland. Iwate Ken, December 26th, 1980. Dear Mum, Scott, Beth and Jane, Hard to imagine that you're basking now in Florida sunshine as I look out at the falling snow. How was your Christmas this year? Beaches and coconuts? Christmas Eve, we had a small blizzard. At the start of the blizzard, I took off into the woods, not to be daunted from my celebration, I lopped off the top of a little pine tree. Between the prints of two celestially born Buddhas, on top of the telephone table, I set up my tree, trimmed it with old bits of ribbon and some things I cooked. No oven, of course, so I deep fried and frosted some things with a texture reminiscent of doughnuts and a shape like Christmas balls. I stoked up my fire, sat down to watch the snow fall by candlelight. It was very quiet and peaceful. It had the peace on earth, goodwill to all quality that Christmas should have. All that was missing was you guys. But you were in my mind. Not able to read or do much of anything with no light, I settled down to meditate for a while. Hardly had I tucked up into a lotus when Takibana Sensei burst in like Santa himself, bearing a bag of goodies. Behind him, his two sons, like Santa's little elves, 
came bumbling in, ready to tuck into a feast. Takibana Sensei, bless his heart, brought not only crackers and sweets, but a little nagging of whiskey, for the cold, of course, and the gatto, Molly O'Rourke, fruit cake. I was stupefied, made right in Dublin. Someone had given it to him five years ago, and he'd never touched it. Must have known a Dubliner would be around for Christmas sooner or later. I was a bit wary of it. The kids were delighted at the Christmas tree. It looked better in the low lighting of a one-watt candle. Christmas was a spectacularly gorgeous day. Blue skies, virgin snow, and that savage, piercing winter sun that transforms everything to crystal. Last night I was exhausted, didn't feel much like cooking, so my Christmas dinner was a simple rice gruel and a piece of tofu. At least no worries about Christmas calories. <laughs> Actually, it was very tasty. Did you have all kinds of tropical treats? I suppose you ate out. Hope it was good. Takes all the work out of Christmas, leaving all the fun bits, I hope. Love you all dearly. M. Some days, I feel as if I'm near some kind of awakening, because my consciousness is different, spontaneously, truly losing itself in menial tasks. Other days, more cynical days, like today, I think I'm closer to a sleepening. That's only because I'm tired and too half awake for my mind to make the effort to run around. It's all I can do to guide my hand peeling the potatoes. Of late, I feel ridiculously happy. No reason, just bursting with joy. I remember when I was young, deciding to commit suicide at 26. Once one hit 30, one was over the hill, so 26 was far enough to live. I reckoned that if I hadn't gotten done by then whatever there was to be done, I never would, so I might as well end it. Now I'm 26, and I feel as if I've lived my life. Strange sensation, almost as if I'm close to death. Any desires, ambitions, hopes I may have had have either been fulfilled or spontaneously dissipated. I'm totally content. Facing into a long, cold winter is not only fine, but I know I'll enjoy it. I'd be embarrassed to tell anyone it sounds so wishy-washy, but now I have maybe 50 or 60 years, who knows, of time, of a life, open, blank, ready to offer. I want to live it for other people. What else is there to do with it? Not that I expect to change the world or even a blade of grass, but it's as if to give myself is all I can do, as the flowers have no choice but to blossom. At the moment, the best I can see to do is to give to people this freedom, this bliss, and how better than through Zazen. So I must go deeper and deeper and work hard, no longer for me, but for everyone I can help. And still, I can't save anyone. They must work for themselves, and not everyone will. I should also work politically, 
Work to make people's surroundings that much more tolerable. Work for a society that fosters more spiritual, more human values. A society for people, not profits. What better way to instill the bodhisattva spirit in people? But they should work for each other, not for personal gain, and they shouldn't have to worry about economic muck. She was seen as an incarnation of the goddess of mercy. Her immense charity, her ability to give joy to others, and relieve sadness is also a strong memory. Her gentle character, her innocence, her cheerfulness, these qualities are also those of the character of the goddess of mercy. She continuously practiced making everyone happy. And helping others. She was never suspicious of people. She had a truly beautiful heart. I think it was actually the 22nd of October that she died in 82. Then the following spring,、um, my son Scott and I received this invitation from、uh, the master, Garoshi, to come over、uh, for a ceremony.、Uh, I, I believe it was on the Buddha. The Buddha's birthday, which is in April, or early April, a lovely time because it's the cherry blossom time. The whole group up there had subscribed to a rather impressive stone,、uh, what they called cannon statue. A cannon statue is, is a statue of this particular very、um, prominent figure in, in Buddhist theology of a, a woman. Her special role is compassion. The statue, when it was unveiled there at, at Kanonji, that was up in the northern Japan. Looking very、um, oriental and with the big、uh, lotus flower under her feet and the flowing uh, uh, robe and all, and uh, uh, but they treated Scott and me oh, oh with great kindness and courtesy and generosity. I can't say enough about how wonderful the people there were, especially the women in that Zen group there.、Uh, I was tremendously impressed. It was a very harrowing. Emotional, difficult time, of course, but、uh, at the same time, I came away with a very、uh, positive feeling about all, all the people, and I could see why they, why she had loved them and they had loved her. It was a, obviously a very affectionate、uh, relationship. Do you remember Jiko Sam? He came over and visited with us in, in Maine and, and wanted to visit her grave, and then he came over to Ireland so he could go to Trinity and see the whole thing. He even went to Loch Derg, and and, and did it twice. They're, they're very disciplined people, very strong, disciplined people, and, and put up with great discomfort, <laughs> as she did too. So it's a world so different from ours. It's hard even to explain how she could have ever adapted to it. I often wonder how she did the, the cold and the strange food and not much of it, and the hard work and the、uh, and the many many hours of just sitting there silently meditating. You know,、um, but、uh, made her a very strong person. I think she was strong anyway, but just stronger, I should say. That statue, first of all,、um, is of Kanon Bosatsu, which is kind of like、um, the Virgin Mary over here. But if you imagine the Virgin Mary with twenty hands, and in each hand she's holding a tool、um, representing a different、um, occupation, that the Kanon is is. Is different because she's regarded as this wonderful being that manifests in every form. So it's a little bit confusing, I think, to say, "Oh, they thought Mora was this reincarnation of this person, Kanon Bosatsu," 
where at any given time there could be 50 people given that same title because that's the beauty of this figure that uh, she came in all different shapes and sizes and Mora was one magical form and a very unexpected one for her to be um, yeah, this Irish hippie showing up out there and doing such a great job in this very rigorous very Japanese way of life and to the Japanese themselves a Zen practice of the old school is incomprehensible why would anyone be drawn to it I often think when I'm over there that my situation is as bizarre as if um, there was some posse of Japanese living in some cloistered nunnery out in the middle of nowhere and you just think, why are you here? When you're given the choice for this thing in your back garden, you don't tend to notice how magical it is. Mora dove into the practice so wholeheartedly and, and with this thing, I'm only here for this short time, I'm just going to burn with it. So she did it the way the ancient masters would have done it. And I think this is what made her so special to so many people, where if she was given a choice um, to go on takohatsu, or to go begging, are you going to wear the socks or not? Well what would the ancients have done and what's the most extreme way to do it and I don't know if she thought well this is the fastest way and I'll get there quicker or whatever but she she did it in as hard a way as she could and that's what impressed them so much the other thing that I would say about Maura and I, I would say it very genuinely and I'm not a religious person is that when I heard that that she had died, I was really upset. But I actually didn't feel that she was dead and I haven't felt that about other people before or since. I just had a, a very strong sense. Whether it was a re reincarnation or just, it wasn't like it was a full stop. And I think that was just a reflection maybe of the strength of her spirit. And I think that she herself didn't actually believe that she was going to live to a ripe old age. I really would say it more than anybody else that I can think of that I really do wonder what Mara would have done. It's very easy to say that certain people are very bright, certain people are very intelligent, but she really had a, a, a cut above it. Plus a huge openness of spirit and where she would have gone with that. I have no idea. We won't know, but I'd love to know. I really would love to know. Maybe nothing, but I just don't believe it. She was really going to do something. And I'm really sorry she's not around at least to be here with us to see what she might have done. I thought one day of my father. I loved him. He lived 43 years, died, and is no more. It made me sad. He was such a wonderful man. No one knows him anymore, loves him anymore. He can no longer touch anyone, move people. Lived, died, and gone, like so many hundreds of millions. As I will. Having had the privilege to be um, a nurse, you've gone through death with a number of people and I've gone through Dad's death and Dad's death was absolutely decimating, it was awful. And, um, and so when Maura died, having gone through his death and having been lucky enough to um, be present at a patient's death, and I know that sounds bizarre, 
but you actually kind of get to stand back and, and watch a wonderful event. It's just like a birth. You, I, I remember seeing one man die and it was literally a spirit was being released into the room and you could see it and feel it and it was so palpable. So for me then, you know, you had that knowledge throughout life. So when Maura died, it was just the same energy was going back out into the world, just like that gentleman that I got to, to watch pass. You know, and having gone through the grief of Dad's death, then Moore's, it just seemed like it was short, but it was fulfilled. And it wasn't a sad event. It was really, in a sense, a, a kind of a joyous event for the world in a bizarre way, because now her spirit was back there for the universe to kind of tap into. And I mean, we don't get her in a little personal way. We don't get to sit down and have cups of tea. But we still, I mean, I still feel her. I still hear a piece of music and she's there or read her book and she's there or, you know, and I really do kind of feel like I can clue in both to my dad and to, and to her energy whenever I need it, you know. She may not change a blade of grass nor light the flame for souls to see But in this silence Easter morning she has found a friend in me Tekuhatsu in Morioka Tekuhatsu in Morioka ah, ah. Ah, 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 ah. Night.